take your Bibles and let's go to James chapter 1. And we're going to begin reading in verses uh, 9 to 12 and then pray for our time together in the Word. So, so hear the Word of the Lord from, from verse 9. It says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich man in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Father, we want to be found loving you in the midst of all of our trials that we face, whether poor or rich. Would you use this passage to make us content in you? And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So it's fairly common for people to equate prosperity with significance. The world often judges people by riches, fame, and social status. Your value and your meaning in life is bound up with your possessions, the world tells us. But then there's Jesus, the Son of God. He is the most significant person in the universe... He is one with God the Father from all eternity. Yet Jesus chooses to enter this world on behalf of sinners, not as a rich boy, but as a slave. He has nowhere to lay his head. Blessed are you who are poor, he says, for yours is the kingdom of God. He tells the rich not to live their best lives now but to sell what they possess and give to the poor, and they will have treasure in heaven. He says that one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus stands the world's value system on his head. Not surprisingly, James does the same thing as an apostle of Jesus. James does the same thing in relation to riches, earthly riches, that is. To belong to Jesus as a slave, to surrender all rights to him, will mean that our lives stand the world's value system on its head when it comes to riches. We should view riches through our identity in Christ and in comparison to His final reward. We should view our riches through our identity in Christ and in comparison to His final reward. When we do that, the church will not only expose the emptiness of earthly riches, but offer the world the true riches found in Jesus Christ. 
James does this first by giving us a, a two-fold command. It has two parts to it. And in many ways, it reflects uh, what the arrival of God's kingdom in Jesus means. It means an end-time reversal. The weak are made strong. The poor are raised up. The last become first. The humble are exalted. But the strong and the rich and the first and the proud, they are all laid low. This is the the reversal of Christ's kingdom arriving. And James' command comes to us in in, in a very similar way. In the first part of his command, he, he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Uh, or better, the lowly brother must boast in his exaltation. This isn't a suggestion. This is a command. And it's a command that may leave us scratching our heads initially. Doesn't the Bible forbid boasting? Isn't it the arrogant who usually boast? Well, that all depends what you're boasting in. In the Bible, boasting is an offense to God only when He and His gracious purposes are not the object. Boasting is good, though, when we're when we are boasting in God and His gracious purposes, when He is the end of our boasting. We we might think of Jeremiah 9, verses 23 to 24. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who does boast, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, That I'm the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Or Paul also says in Romans 5, verses 2 and 3, Through Jesus we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice, or we boast, same word, in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we rejoice or we boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Boasting is good when it's God-centered and grace-dependent. When this boasting language appears, though, in these these more positive, God-centered ways, it's better understood as glorying in something. Uh, Rejoicing exceedingly. In God and his, and his gracious works. And here we begin to see the link back to where James began. In verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. What kind of trials might the lowly brother be facing? Well, certainly he's facing economic hardship. Since he's being compared to the rich here. But if you read James, a few more things stand out. Uh, The lowly brother's needs are getting ignored in their personal relationships with others. People are 
patting him on the back. Yeah, I'll pray for you. Be warm and be filled. Go on your way. But they're not actually giving him anything that he needs for his body. Being ignored in personal relationships. They're also getting overlooked, even dishonored in their church gatherings. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 7 tell us. And they're also experiencing oppression in their daily vocations, at their jobs. And that's clear in chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. So whether it's his personal relationships or the, or the church or even out in the world, this is what they're experiencing. They're getting ignored, overlooked, and oppressed. You know, what, what might you feel in those circumstances? Is there a desire in you when that happening to be recognized more than what you are? Perhaps loneliness and betrayal. Uh, A want to get even with the big guys. Envy, bitterness, maybe even a great sadness over your unchangeable circumstances. James says the lowly brother doesn't need to go there. It's significant that James uses the word lowly instead of poor... Being poor certainly places you in a better position to welcome the gospel. But it doesn't automatically make you Christian. I've met lots of poor people who hate God over their circumstances. James doesn't have them in mind. He has the lowly poor people in mind. Those who are humbly walking before God. Those who are humbly walking with Jesus through their impoverished circumstances. And in the midst of the economic hardship... In the midst of the unimportance that they're facing in the world's eyes, the lowly brother, he says, must glory in his exaltation. What exaltation? Well, the exaltation that he has in union with Jesus Christ. Uh, The New Testament uses this same language to speak of Jesus being exalted or lifted up to the right hand of God. And everybody who is then united to Jesus by faith, that means there's a trustful reliance upon him with their life, and and he makes them their own. When, When that's true of you, the Bible teaches that you're exalted with him. You get raised up and seated with him in the heavenlies. You're exalted with him now, and you will be exalted on the final day. That he raises you from the dead. And folks, it doesn't get any higher or richer than being seated with Jesus, does it? The poor Christian, he's telling them, must find deep, settled contentment in his exalted status in Christ. Even when his rich brothers and sisters are being jerks. Even when the world scoffs, the lowly Christian must not sit and sulk over their circumstances. He must not resort to complaining and bitterness at his circumstances, nor should he pretend to gain significance by changing his circumstances. He very well could receive a better place, perhaps, economically speaking, but but he shouldn't find his significance there, his identity and self-worth there. And why is that? Because of all the riches he possesses in Jesus Christ. You don't need significance in the world's eyes when you have it in God's eyes. 
In God's eyes, he's exalted in Christ. You may be materially poor, but in Jesus Christ, you are spiritually rich. The church in Smyrna was like this. In Revelation 2.9, Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Or even in James chapter 2, if you look at verse 5 of chapter 2, he, he asks, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Matthew 5 and Romans 8 says that we will inherit the earth as Abraham's children. Ephesians 1 says that, that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You read from a passage in Revelation earlier about the new Jerusalem and the glories of the kingdom. That's yours if you're in Christ. Some of you visited with Larry and Anita last Sunday. Uh, they have a friend whose name is, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Yamorgie Cyprian. He goes by Cyprian. But he was born with some severe deformities. And his parents treated him as if he was some sort of evil spirit or demon that came to destroy their village. So they gave him the name Yamuragie, which means unknown thing. Unknown thing. He was disowned and despised in the world's eyes. And then God saved this man. You see, this is the way God does it. He saves the weak in order to shame the strong. God saved him, and now he's a passionate evangelist for Jesus. He loves Jesus. Even when the world sees him as an unknown thing, Cyprian now knows that in Christ... He has everything. He is an heir to God's unshakable kingdom. He is seated with Christ in the heavenly places. He is clothed with Christ's righteousness. He is filled with the Spirit. He has resurrection hope despite all of his deformities. And he glories in his exaltation. And that hope fills Cyprian to overflowing in love and grace toward others as he walks the beaches in Israel and hands out Isaiah 53. To share the gospel. How about you? Do you glory in your exalted status in Christ when brought low? When people overlook you? When people despise you? When people ignore you? When they leave you in the dust while they chase after whatever pursuits it is? How are you remembering in those moments the riches that you have in Christ? What is it that you're preaching to yourself in those moments? And is it the riches of Jesus? James says the lowly brother must glory in his exaltation. But there's a second part to this command as well that comes at the beginning of verse 10. And, and it says, And the rich in his humiliation... Now, since James doesn't repeat the word brother in verse 10, some have argued that he doesn't have a rich Christian in mind. He has a rich non-Christian in mind. Perhaps. 
by the end of the letter, I think we'll see that actually both kinds of Christians are gather. I mean, both kinds of people are gathering in their uh, services. There are rich Christians and there are rich non-Christians. You just have to discern which rich people are being addressed more directly or indirectly in each context. And I take James to be addressing rich Christians in particular, with the rich non-Christians overhearing in the background. Okay, so verse 10 is a parallel thought. And many times when this happens in in the Greek, you, you have to supply the wording from the previous clause. So in this case, the rich brother must glory in his humiliation. That's the way I take it. If you're a rich believer, and that's almost everybody in this room, even if, you're not, if you, even if you're living from paycheck to paycheck, the majority of us fall into the rich category. Wealth is more than money. It's also resources, house and cell phones and cable, internet and minivans and college and books and computers and roads and bridges and doctors and stores and Cheerios and Facebook. When you think rich, don't limit wealth to your weekly income. We are rich in comparison to most Christians throughout this world. If you're a rich believer, then you must glory, he says, in your humiliation. What humiliation? It's the humiliation we have in union with Christ and his people. Let me tease that out. I say it's his humiliation in union with Christ because we find the same humiliation in Jesus. The clearest example is 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that by his poverty you might become rich. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The richest person in the universe, Jesus, made himself lowly to make others rich with eternal life. And that's true of you if you're rich. If you wonder, why is the Lord blessing me with so much right now? Because he's giving you the opportunity to give and give and give and give away so as to reflect the way Jesus saved us. That's what he wants you to do in the world. We must glory in this, he says. Now that's really hard for a rich person to do, especially in the West. Really hard. That's why the rich young ruler walked away from Jesus. He couldn't give up his riches to the poor. He went away sorrowful, Matthew 19 says, because he had great possessions. It's hard to live this way when you're rich. But it gets easier if you have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is giving you a proper perspective on your riches. Right? This is what we've been talking about. The Holy Spirit granting us wisdom. He's granting us a a God-centered perspective on on everything in our lives. And and that's true. He gives us the same perspective on riches. And we see it in verses 10 and 11. He says, Because like a flower of the grass he will pass away, 
For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. I can just see James the pastor, right? Looking at all the rich people in the room as he reads this, he sees them gathering in the church. And chapter 2 tells us he sees some of the rich Christians giving favor to the, to the other folks who are rich and telling the poor, here, sit down at my feet. He sees this going on. He's looking at the rich people in the room. And he sees them their fancy robes. He says, you know what I see? I see a wilting flower fixing to die. You're only rich for a little while, and then you die. Why don't you get some perspective, some Holy Spirit perspective on your stuff? Paul says the same thing, doesn't he? Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. That keeps things in perspective, doesn't it? Because if riches are transitory, I mean, if if they're passing away, then my ultimate treasure best be found elsewhere. Namely, in Jesus and in his uncheckable kingdom. But there's another piece here to this this picture, uh, to this humiliation. It's something in union with Christ and also his people. He just said, the lowly brother must glory in his exaltation. Now he says the rich brother must glory in his humiliation or more literally in his being made lowly. So you've got the lowly brother in verse 9 and the rich man becoming lowly like his other lowly brothers in verse 10. He's being made lowly together with the lowly. He's identifying with them. Everybody's on the same level, in other words, at the foot of Jesus. At the foot of his cross. When when you believe in Jesus, he brings you low. He humbles you. He puts you in your place. He exposes how weak and frail and destitute you really are without him. You know, we sometimes feel awkward when maybe we're walking downtown and we're driving by I-30 and... Las Vegas Trail, and we see the beggar on the street with the cup or the sign. We might feel a little awkwardness settling on us as we see them or or brokenheartedness over their state. That's a picture of you and me at the foot of the cross. We are all beggars in need. Of Christ. In need of God's grace. We are helpless. And if you don't like that position, you're not going to follow Jesus very long. You will be like the seed that was planted in the soil and the cares and riches of the world grew up around it and choked the life out of that plant. If you find your identity in riches, you will perish with your riches. But if you glory in your humiliation in Christ, there is great reward waiting for you. And that's where James goes next with the crown. But we need to sit on this a little longer, I think. Are we okay being numbered with the lowly brother? 
Those brothers and sisters uh, suffering economic hardship, those who in the world's eyes might be unknown things. Are we okay with being identified with them? Let me ask the question a little differently. Why aren't more of them part of us? Why aren't more of them part of us? This is what we see in, in the kind of the normal pattern in the New Testament. Paul writes to the Corinthians, Not many of you were of noble birth. There's a few. But most of the Christians were, were poor. If one of the primary aims of Christ's kingdom is that the, the poor hear the gospel, where are they? If God promised their conversion, it's a hypothetical here, if God promised their conversion, how many of them would be saved tomorrow because of our prayers today? How many of them would be saved tomorrow because of our evangelism efforts today? Or our mercy ministries today? Are we only showing hospitality to those who look just like us and make about the same amount of money as we do and who don't have a bunch of pressing needs we're going to have to hear about over dinner and have to deal with? Jesus said in Luke 14, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. James encourages a similar outlook on our life for the rich Christian. We, we must glory in our humiliation. Rejoice exceedingly in this opportunity that we have. We must glory in being identified with the lowly. Identified with the one who was despised and rejected by men. We must not let riches go to our head, but see just how fleeting our earthly riches really are. We must rejoice exceedingly in our association with the poor and insignificant in the eyes of the world. This is the twofold command. This is the corrective he's bringing on a congregation with, with poor and rich in, in it alike. By identifying ourselves with Christ, whether poor or rich, we stand on level ground. The lowly are made high in Christ. They glory in their exaltation. The rich are made lowly with Christ. They glory in their humiliation. And this seemingly upside-down community reflects what the kingdom of God is all about. Toppling the boastful pride of men through the humble reign of his Messiah. This is how we view our circumstances through God's wisdom in Christ. You see, James hasn't left the theme of wisdom. This is God's wisdom for the poor and the rich. You see, this whole thing's been about trials. Started with trials in verse 2. It's going to end with trials in verse 1. It's the poor and the rich who are experiencing trials... Trials come with, pros- with, po- with trials come with poverty, and trials come with prosperity. As John Blanchard put it, the poor man is tempted to doubt God because he has so little. The rich man is tempted to desert God because he has so much. 
I have a Christian brother who, who owns a construction company, and he texts me, he sends me text messages regularly, pray for me that I do not fall in love with money. That God would guard my heart from this and make me generous to others. This is why verse 12, brings, so verse 12 is bringing us full circle back to the various trials. He mentioned in verse 2, and both the rich and the poor, got to stay, they got to keep steadfast through them. Whether poor or rich, you've got to be steadfast in, your, in seeing yourself and seeing your riches as God does. You've got to be steadfast in finding your identity in Christ and in Christ alone. But it's not just about your identity in Christ that will help you think rightly about your riches. It's also the future reward that will help us think rightly about riches. And that's where James goes next with the the crown of life. He looks at the poor Christian who must glory in his exaltation with all the belittling things hurled at him by others. And then he looks at the rich Christian who must glory in his humiliation in the face of all the riches alluring him away from faithfulness to Christ and generosity toward others. They're both facing their various trials and he encourages them with a promised reward if they remain steadfast. Blessed, he says, is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. The images of, a, of, a, of the crown of an athlete who would receive, uh, that an athlete would receive after winning a strenuous contest. This is Gary Brumley after a marathon, getting the crown, the wreathed crown on his head. The only thing is that uh, this crown lasts forever. It never perishes. And it's probably best to see this crown as a metaphor. Uh, The only other place it appears is in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. And uh, he gives you that. And then in verse 11 of chapter 2 of Revelation, he basically says, what's the opposite? Which is, you know, if you persevere and you get this crown, you're not going to suffer the final judgment, which is called the second death in Revelation So the crown of life means the crown which is life itself. It's the reward of life in God's presence. This is is incredible. This is the God of the universe. And when all of his saints are gathered, what does he do? You see him adorning his people with his life as a reward for steadfastness. The poor Christian and the rich Christian alike can look to this reward as they remain steadfast in trial. You know, future reward is one of the motivating factors of our obedience in this life. It's one of the motivating factors of our perseverance, this future reward. Sometimes Christians struggle with that because it sounds like we're trying to obey God in order to get something else. That's not what's going on. Life with Jesus is the reward. And everything he will reward us with will only help us to enjoy more of Jesus. Every good work receives a 
reward because every good work is a testimony that Jesus is worthy of our allegiance. And so heavenly reward comes after the good works and says, hey, Jesus is greatest. Every time you're going to look at each other in heaven, everything about your life will say, Jesus is greatest. All your rewards will say, Jesus is greatest. There won't be, oh, I wish I had that house more than him. No, everything will just be, Jesus is greatest. So don't try to be more spiritual than the Bible Being afraid of these rewards. The crown of life is in your Bible to motivate you, to strengthen you, to help you hold on to Jesus. You know, God knows what we're facing as Christians, whether rich or poor. If if you're rich, He knows how dangerous wealth can be. He sees how it tugs on your heart. He sees the temptation to covet more, to hoard more, to puff yourself up over, over others more. And so here's what He does. He comes in, He exposes its transitoriness. Hey, You're going to die like a flower. And then he stirs your affection for the superior and abiding possession that you have in Christ, the crown of life. And if you're poor, he knows what it means to be ignored, to be overlooked, to be oppressed, to to suffer for his sake. Maybe you're choosing a path of obedience that means you won't ever see the riches that others see. He knows what it's like. God's son walked that road before you did on his way to the cross and he gives us the payoff if we follow him to that cross through such trials. It's in your Bible so that every trial that makes you want to quit and every trial that's un- that you think is unbearable, you can look to the crown and say, he's worth my faithfulness right now. That's why it's there. Only those who are gripped by the crown of life can endure their cross. In his book, God in the Whirlwind, David Wells says, No one can sustain consistent self-giving freely and joyfully over a lifetime unless they are hearing the music of another age. James is playing one of those kingdom tunes for you. Can you hear it? You sang it earlier. Find rest, my soul, in God alone, amidst the world's temptations. When evil seeks to take a hold, I'll cling to my salvation. Though riches come and riches go. Got a poor man there and a rich man. Though riches come and riches go, don't set your heart upon them. The fields of hope in which I sow are harvested in heaven. Oh, praise him, hallelujah, my delight and my reward. That's coming out of your mouths earlier. You're just singing with James here. No one can sustain consistent self-giving freely and joyfully over a lifetime unless they are hearing the music of another age. That's why we sing together. On a weekly basis. The songs of corporate worship are like a catechism every week to etch biblical truth onto your souls so that you carry it with you throughout the week. That whether you're getting a paycheck or losing your savings, the music of another age is freeing your soul from deserting God because you have so much or doubting God because you have so little. 
how much we need to be singing these kinds of songs to keep us from falling in love with riches. You see, the question of our love for God really strikes at the heart of the matter here. That's where James ends. James tells us that much, uh, he tells us that much by making it part of the promise here. He, 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 who is it here that gets the crown? Who, who gets the crown? It's those who love God. Not those who love riches, but those who love God. I mean, the greatest thing that you can do to live like we've been talking about today is grow in your love for God. Seek His face in prayer. Glut yourself on His promises in the Word. It's to meditate on His greatness and glory. That's the vision for our church. Long before it tells you to do anything, we're equipping you to delight in God's glory. To delight. The rest will come if you're delighting. So I want to finish by setting before you just a few questions to ask yourself in relation to riches. And by asking these questions, I want to give you the impression by this message that wealth is evil. It's not evil in itself. The Bible never says that wealth is evil in itself. But it has a whole lot to say about how dangerous it can be. And so it's good to ask ourselves some questions based on Scripture to make sure we're loving God and, and, and not money. I forgot to put these in the PowerPoint, so I'll try to go slow. But first question, how are you acquiring your wealth? How are you acquiring your wealth? Is it with honesty and with integrity? James 5, 4 says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Are you cheating employees? Are you cheating your employer? Are you cheating your roommate, fudging on timesheets? How are you acquiring your wealth? That will tell you where you're heart is? Is it righteous gain? Second question, how are you using your wealth? How are you using your wealth? Does it look more like, like hoarding or, or generosity towards others? Are, are you like the rich fool who, who built bigger barns but wasn't rich toward God? Or are you more like those using their possessions, their, their wealth for godly purposes? Uh, like those who count it a privilege to associate with the lowly and to help them in their needs. We see this all over the book of Acts. But, you know, the, like, like those who were able to sell their houses and their lands in order to provide for others. You've got to be wealthy to have that to begin with. They're selling their houses and lands in order to provide for us. Or others aren't selling their houses. They're actually keeping their houses. Like Priscilla and Aquila and apparently their house is big enough that the whole church is meeting there regularly. They're using their house to serve the church. Uh, Paul commends the sister Phoebe because she apparently used her wealth to serve and bless others with it. She was a patron of many. So how are you using your wealth? And you could evaluate that in concentric circles of the Bible develops for us elsewhere, with, starting with your family, 
What's it look like? How are you spending your money in family and then your local church? And then out from there, those neighbors in closest proximity to you. There's a prioritization there that the scriptures give us. A third question, are you content with what you have? Regardless of your state, are you content with what you have? Paul says, if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Perhaps you don't have what others have. And you begin to covet what they have. Perhaps other things are stripped from you that you would have liked to keep. And instead of contentment, you find yourself growing bitter or anxious or worried. Such lack of contentment is often indicative of a deeper lack of love for God and a desire to have what He, in His wisdom, has seen not fitting to grant you at this time. Are you content with what you have? And one more, how much do you value earthly riches in your heart? How much do you value them in your heart? Regardless if it's a paycheck or a commentary on Romans, whatever. How, how are you valuing these riches in your heart? First Timothy 6.10 says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. He tells the rich also not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. So where is your love centered? Where is your hope ultimately found? Is it, is it in something that lasts? I'm not saying that you can't enjoy these things. God also tells the rich that he gives us all things to enjoy. So you get and enjoy them and give thanks for them. But don't, just, don't find your ultimate hope there. So whether rich or poor, we all have much to consider as we, as we carry this passage home with us and to work with us and, and to school with us. But let's pray that God would make it alive in us. Let's hold out the hope that God would help us walk together in his exaltation and his humiliation. And may God then be pleased to cause us to live out the kingdom reversal, to to live in such a way that it leaves the world scratching their heads and wondering, where is it that you find your identity? This sense of self-worth. What is it that you values so much. And then we can tell them it's not a matter of where or what. It's a matter of who. His name is Jesus Christ. Let me tell you about him. He's worth infinitely more than money can buy. And he died for your sins so that you could be an heir in his kingdom. You too can have him by faith.